I'm reading from the New Testament, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thank you, Michael and Sharon. Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to see you. Uh, as Mick asked me about the AGM rules, I was reminded actually that they are a bit different this year, a little bit controversially. The membership normally is a three-month rule. Uh, this year, Standing Committee, because of COVID, have made it that you needed to satisfy that rule as at last year, at the end of March, uh, the last time we had an AGM. So I'll clarify that via email. But uh, just so you know, if you've joined us since COVID, I'm sorry to say, even if you've joined us for three months, uh, you wouldn't be eligible to vote for this one. Uh, but you will be for next time, so stay with us. Uh, it'll be wonderful. Uh, also, I should say, Working Bee is coming up next week. You know, I love Working Bees. I, I love getting on the tools. It's one of my favourite things to do. Uh, I'd love to see you. I've been looking at the registrations. We could use more people. So if you can come next Saturday morning, that would be very helpful. Uh, lastly, I wanted to say about my seat at the front. I'm not trying to establish a new thing where the rector has a seat at the front. I'm just sitting there to maximise the number of seats we can have here, okay? Just to be clear, I don't have some weird, I need to sit in the front seat kind of thing going on. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that we can come under your mighty word. So we pray that you would work mightily in us today. And we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, you probably heard the story of uh, 
The Emperor's New Clothes, uh, Han Christian Andersen's Kids' Tales. My parents read it to me when I was a kid. I read that old book to my kids as kids, and I'm sure it will go on. Uh, if you don't know the story, it's a, it's a great story. I think it still has relevance to speak in today's culture. Uh, there's this emperor who's obsessed with clothing. He should be obsessed with looking after his empire, but he's obsessed with how he looks to his people. And there is a couple of swindlers who come into town and they say, we can make the finest clothing with the finest thread. It'll be wonderful. You will look amazing. It is so fine that only people who are not stupid, only people who are wise will be able to see the thread of these new clothes. And so the swindlers get to work on, the, on their loom making the clothes for the emperor. And they're working away and uh, officials go and talk each day. They go and see, oh, look at these wonderful clothes, thinking in their heads, wait a minute, there's no clothes. There's no clothes, but they can't admit it because it's, well, it's amazing thread that the stupid can't see. And so they just go back and say, amazing work, amazing work. And then finally, the emperor goes to try on his clothes. And he's in real bind because he's looking at invisible clothes. There are no clothes there. And you go, but if I admit it, I look stupid. So I'm not going to admit it. So he puts on his light, fantastic, smooth clothes. And he walks down the main street for all the crowds to see. And if you've got the old book, there's a picture of his backside wandering down the street with the crowds cheering on. The emperor's new clothes. Now, of course, the crowds have the same problem. They're watching on and they're thinking, we know these are supposed to be special clothes that only the wise can see. So what do they do? They cheer. What amazing clothes you're wearing, emperor, as he walks along. And it takes a kid in the crowd to go, hang on a second, he's got no clothes on. He's got no clothes on, but, but everyone's like, Shh, no, don't say it. And they cheer all the more, and the emperor walks kind of all strutting along, all proud of himself. Uh, it's a famous story, and I, I think politically, it was a critique of the emperor at the time, but that's the history of it. I think it continues to speak an important point uh, into today's world, uh, a world where crowd thinking can easily get caught up into things that are wrong, where swindlers can teach false truths, uh, and where vain leaders want to look good for the people <laughs> rather than actually doing good for the people. But that's beside the point. Uh, the reason I tell the story today is because it's relevant to Colossians 3. So the Christians in Colossae are being called to change, uh, real change, not an appearance of change. They're not supposed to be fake Christians. They're not supposed to try and look like they are good Christians. They're supposed to actually be real Christians. Heart change inside change, hearts and minds. And so today we're going to think about that in two parts. Uh, part one, the first sermon for today, we're going to have two sermons, I'm sorry to tell you, but all up it won't be much longer than normal. Two sermons today. First one will be to set your minds on things above and we'll think about the change. Why theologically are we supposed to be changed as Christians? Then we'll have half time, uh, no oranges, but we'll have a song and we'll stand and we'll sing we won't sing, we'll stand to stretch our legs and we'll watch as others sing and enjoy the words. Then part two, we'll come back and we'll think about real change in real issues. So we're going to think about sex and money. I'm going to tell you that now, MA, second half, okay? It's for mature adults, just so you know. We're going to talk about real issues and how we're supposed to be changed. Let's get back into the headspace of Colossians, though. Remember chapter one. In chapter one, we heard the message of Jesus transform the church in Colossae. They had faith and love in chapter 1. 
They were a church known for these things. They were a church centered on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God, who is the Son of God, who is the Creator, who is the Sustainer, who, who has all the fullness of God in Him. He rules, He sustains, He is God. But last week we saw that the Colossian church, though they'd found Jesus, the Son of God, they were tempted to go back to the old ceremonies, the old ways, the old religious rites. They were tempted to turn from what they had in Christ and go back. And so Paul urged them, 2.6, just as you receive Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. That's how you go on, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith that you received, overflowing with thankfulness. Uh, two weeks ago, I called Colossians 1.28 a ministry model. If you remember, what's our ministry model? It's to proclaim Jesus. We proclaim Jesus seeking maturity. We want to see people move to the right, where the right was Jesus in all his fullness. A ministry model. Today, we have a pastoral model. Today, we see a model of how it is we want people to express maturity as Christians. And it comes to us in the form of metaphors. Uh, I'm going to go through the three metaphors that we find in chapter 3. Maybe you picked them out as we read it. The changed life, dress up for the occasion. Uh, the first metaphor that the apostle uses is hearts and minds. As he said in verse 2, set your hearts on things above. But then verse 3, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. See, for us Christians, it's about our whole self, hearts and heads, whole selves in for Jesus, whole selves transformed by the gospel. Before Christ, minds are set on the world, earthly things, things of this life. With Christ, since you have been raised in verse 1, seek hearts and minds to be set on heavenly things. Now, we need to hear the radical call of that. Notice no two options. There's no third option. Set your hearts and mind above and set your hearts and minds below and live it out wonderfully comfortably. There's no find the balance of it. There's no happy medium. There's no best of both worlds. There's just set your hearts and minds on things above. Now, we'll get to the theology and the practicality of that in a moment, but hear the radical call of it because the second metaphor ups the ante. Uh, the next one is about the difference between life and death. So verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So Christ is life. So without Christ, and we've seen this before, is death. Life and death. Uh, we'll come back to verse 3 and think more about it, but at the moment, just, just see... Verse 3 says, now your life is hidden in Christ. That is, you are in with Christ. You are with him. The, the full reality is to be fully seen when Jesus returns. But even now, you are with him. The point of the metaphor is the, the radical difference, life and death. There's no halfway house between life and death. And then there's a third metaphor in Colossians 3, and it's the clothing, change of clothing metaphor. So verse 12, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothed yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Change your clothes as Christians. Put on the right clothes 
as Christians. So what we're to imagine is that we're wearing dirty, disgusting clothes as human beings. Uh, they're characterised in verse 8. They're full of anger, they're rage, malice, slander, filthy language. But the new clothes, verse 12, hear these, these are different clothes. It's pure, it's righteous. It's verse 14, it's summarised by putting on love that binds them all together. I don't know if you remember back in the 80s, the Omo TV ads that struck in my brain, I think I've mentioned them before. Omo TV ads were that Omo can fix any uncleanness. Nothing cleans and brightens like Omo. Except it doesn't work on sin. You have to take off your clothes, you can't wash them, you've got to throw them away. They are done with. And you've got to put on the new clothes of Christ. Here again is the radical picture of the new life. So we've got three metaphors here all about putting off and putting on. Uh, since I've come here to this church, I, I've never been in a church that's so interested in my clothes. It's quite an amazing thing, really. Uh, I think it's my own fault for side-commenting Simon when we were both in checks one day, so I deserve it, fair enough. But the thing is, Jesus doesn't care about our clothes. He, he literally doesn't care. I mean, he'd care if we wore the emperor's new clothes. Please don't wear those to church. That is not helpful for anyone. But whether I wear a suit or shorts or thongs or a t-shirt or a singlet, whatever I wear and stand up here, providing I'm honouring God in the way I dress, whatever I wear, Jesus doesn't care. He doesn't care about my fashion. He cares about my heart. He cares about what I put on in my heart. Now, in the story of the emperor's new clothes, the vanity of the emperor reveals his heart. His actions, the way he dressed, shows what he's on about. He wanted to be wise. He wanted to be seen to be wise. He looked a fool. Paul's metaphor exposes a similar truth in today's passage. Uh, who we are is exposed by what we do. And how we live gives insight into what we think of Christ. So, if you are a Christian, dress for the occasion. Dress in the righteousness of Christ. Uh, and more than that, if you are a Christian, learn from the child's voice in the story. The child was the one that saw the truth, right? But the child is our friends. The child is maybe literally our own children. The, the child is the one that is watching on and says, wait a minute, you say Jesus is your Lord and you live like Jesus is not your Lord. And only they see the truth. Learn from the voice of reason <laughs> that speaks the truth. The way we live, if it doesn't match up with what we believe can actually be a great hypocrisy and danger for the gospel. Well, I pray it's not the case amongst us, but Colossians 3 is about putting off and putting on. And it's radical, putting off and putting on. And so I want to look at the sort of underlying theology. Why is that? Why do we put off and why do we put on in our next point? The reason we put on the new clothes in the Christian life. Let's go back to that verse 3. Paul says for you died to the Colossians who are clearly not dead they're about to read a letter they're not dead people why does he write to them you died well it's what he's been setting up right through Colossians uh, 121 if you flip back just a page 121 once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior see once before Christ before they were raised with Christ they were far from God once they were enemies of God. That means they were not alive, not truly 
alive. They were zombies, the walking dead. They looked like they were alive, but they're not truly alive. But staying in chapter 1, 122 says, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. See, in that, Christians have been reconciled. The Colossians have been reconciled. Their old selves, says 2.13, as you flip forward, that deserved condemnation because they were enemies, they died with Christ. They died at the cross. Our sins, nailed on the cross with his arms, with his legs. Our sins were with Jesus at the cross. And so, theologically speaking, becoming a Christian means dying. You die to your former life. It's not a physical death. It's dying to your earthly self. It's dying to living for yourself. 2.12 says our old self was buried with Christ. So we died, we were buried, it was done, that life. But like Christ rose, we rose with Christ. We were raised with Christ to new life. Uh, This language of being born again, it's sort of culturally a bit of cringe these days. I don't know if anyone goes around saying, I'm a born-again Christian. But it's actually true. We might cringe at speaking like that, but when Billy Graham came out 50 years ago or or more now, people who were converted said, I'm a born-again Christian. I I realised my old life, I had to die to that, and my new life, I live to this. I'm born again. The language is helpful to see what Colossians is saying. The old is gone, the new has come. Now, why does this theology matter? This theology really matters. It's important to understand the old is gone, the new has come. See verse 12 today. As God's chosen people, we are holy and dearly loved. See, right now, we are just kind of hanging around, waiting for heaven. Jesus will get here, he'll fix everything, it'll all be okay, I'll just, I'll just wait. And if I wait well, all will be good. That's not what we're doing. We have already been raised with Christ. Our life is hidden with Christ. That is, we are with Christ, but it will be fully revealed when he comes back. But our life is certainly tied up with Christ right now. That's what verse 3 is getting at. Your life is not fully visible, but it is true. And so the implication is, you've already started eternal life. If you trust Jesus, you've already started your eternal life. It'll just keep going. There's this little blip that'll be your human death if Jesus doesn't come back. It's a blip. It's just a blip. Your eternal life has already started. And so the implication is, if we've now started our eternal life, then shouldn't we live like we're living our eternal life? Shouldn't we be clothed, in verse 12, in the clothes of eternal life? Dress as you are. Live as the holy people you've been made to be. Put on the team uniform, not check shirts, of Jesus right now. What is that team uniform? It's compassion. It's humility. It's kindness. It's gentleness. It's patience as it's listed out there. These are the attributes of a transformed heart. A heart that cares for others. Verse 13 is particularly important in church life. Bear with each other. You read that? Forgive each other like Jesus forgave you. 
One of the key transformations when you become a Christian is, is giving over your power for individual expression of your rights back to Jesus. To hold back your own personal expression when you think, I'm right, they're wrong in church life. When you think, I really want my say on this. You know what it's like? Bearing with one another. I'm so glad it was put into the Bible because it's true. We need to bear with one another. It is not easy all the time. I wish it was. But I know we're doing it because there wouldn't be a church if we couldn't bear with one another. Like every other human institution, eventually they just blow up and we give up. We just try something else with people that we actually like. <laughs> I hope that's not true about church, right? Love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Never think church life is easy, that's for sure. But Jesus wants us to wear the team uniform, to be in it together, to love one another and bear with one another. And not just for the sake of unity. You know, the old British way of kind of stiff up a lip and can't stand it, but I do it anyway. Not like that. Not unity for the sake of unity. It's unity because Jesus loved you first. And you know what you've been forgiven. You know how he swallowed his pride for you. He gave up everything. And love, uh, says verse 14, binds this all together. You take all those characteristics of the new life, they're bound together to transform us in love. Love. So dress for the occasion. That's what Paul is saying. Dress for the occasion. You're a Christian. Dress as a Christian. Verse 2 says that means set your minds on things above. Verse 5 says put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Verse 8 says rid yourself of anger. Verse 9, clothe yourself. Verse 13, bear with each other. Verse 14, put on love. Verse 15, be thankful. Notice how active it is. It's not active in that it's all your strength. Remember, we already saw that the strength that energizes Paul is Christ's strength. Uh, the way that we live the new life is the maturity of verse 10 that we're given through the scriptures. But it is this partnership where we're to work hard at these things with the power of Christ at work in us. If Jesus is your Lord, and, and that is really important, if you don't have Jesus as your Lord, don't try and do these things to put on the clothes. That's fake wearing the clothes. You get the clothes as a result of trusting in Jesus. The opportunity to live the transformed new life and new clothes comes from faith in him. But once you trust him, once you begin the new life, that's the eternal life, once you're a Christian, then God is at work powerfully in you. And you, in partnership with him, continue to put on the new clothes of the new life. That's the theology of Colossians 3. I want to draw that together first to see the theological underpinnings before we get to the practicalities. And the practicalities actually are the things that really matter. It's actually putting on the new clothes that's the pointy end today. And that's where we'll come to. We're going to sing first. Half time break. We declare, we're going to praise God, declaring the truths. And let's stand as we do, just to get used to standing again while songs are sung and stretch your legs. So we declare the praises of Jesus, Savior and King. He is the cornerstone, hallelujah. And now we stand as his church until the day when he comes in glory, hallelujah. 
are his kingdom, we are his bride. For us he paid the price, for us he bled and died. We are his people, his treasured prize. For us he conquered sin, for he is risen. With thankfulness we will sing. With thankfulness we will sing. So we declare the praises of Jesus, Savior and King. He is the cornerstone. Hallelujah. And now we stand as His church until the day when He comes in glory. a priesthood, beloved ones. He draws the scattered near. He builds his kingdom here. A holy nation now set apart to be his hands and feet, to speak his mercy. With thankfulness we will sing. With thankfulness we will sing. So we declare the praises of Jesus, Savior and King. He is the cornerstone. Hallelujah. And now we stand as His church until the day when He comes in glory. With thankfulness we will sing Adopted now we are here With thankfulness we will sing Adopted now we are here So we declare the praises of Jesus, Savior and King. He is the cornerstone. Hallelujah. And now we stand as His church until the day when He comes in glory. be seated. How good was that? Praise God for our band. That is my worst nightmare to try and sing in front of people. I do it every now and again just to push myself. Uh, my natural inclination is never sing in front of people. So praise God for those that can do it and so well. It's an excellent song. Look forward to singing it. Uh, part two. <laughs> so do you. Seriously. You're all laughing at me but it's true. Part two. MA 15 plus. 
or 13 or whatever. I'm sure we've all talked about sex and money before. But I would say, in years gone by, I would have picked my audience. I might have gathered the young men. I might have gone to youth group. I might have spoken in different ways. But we need to think about sex and money because they are key to the passions of life. We need to know how Christians to put off and to put on. Oscar Wilde famously said, everything is about sex, except sex. Sex is about power. Coolio famously rapped, and I'm not going to rap it for you, <laughs> power and the money, money and the power, minute after minute, hour after hour. Thank you over there to the Bullens. Well done. Two famous takes on passions. Sex, money, and power. They are key to humanity, right? If we as Christians don't have a gospel that speaks to sex, money, and power, we've lost it. We're not speaking to the world. We're not speaking to those of the earthly nature if we cannot address those things, if we don't know how to put off and to put off, put on, put on in those areas. And so Paul knows this. That's why he's got it embedded in our uh, passage today. Have a look with me again, verse 5, chapter 3. Verse 5 says, Kill, kill our worldly views of sex and money. Uh, let me read it for you. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. It doesn't get more black and white than, than that, does it? Kill our worldly views of sex and money and power because judgment is coming for these things, verse 6. Now, in reality, judgment is coming on all sin, but, but I think this is the pointy end. I think Paul gets it. He walks around a city of ungodliness and he knows it's all about sex and money and power for people. This is the pointy end of whether you're going to be saved or judged, how you respond to Christ in these elements. These are key passions for all of humanity. So looking first in verse 5 at the first three things, uh, these are about sex. Sexual immorality. Uh, that word is often translated fornication in older translations, which was an under-translation. And I think it represents a change in view in our society of the fullness of sexual immorality. Uh, the word underneath it is porneia, which obviously has come forward into modern English. So it's about any sex between people outside of the context God has given. So God has made sex for marriage between a husband and a wife. Uh, impurity is uncleanness, but it's particularly associated in the New Testament with sexual impurity. If you chase all the words, it's, it's almost always sexual impurity. Lust or passions is the underlying word, can be for many things, but, but almost always, again, is for sexual things, passions. So unless your head has been in the sand, you know the world is obsessed with sex, and Paul knows it too. Sometimes people think the 60s was the sexual revolution and everyone started thinking about sex again. That's not true. I mean, read your Old Testaments. <laughs> People have been thinking about sex since the garden, since there was a couple of naked people there. This is humanity. And it's very, very human, which is why we need to talk about it. Uh, we've all seen the news in recent times uh, from Canberra, uh, all of the debate about consent, and I don't want to speak into that debate at the moment. I, I don't know whether the allegations are true or not, but we do know where sexual passions can end. 
How often do sexual passions end at the expense of other people? I mean, the institutional abuse inquiry proved that. How terrible that someone's sexual passion has ended in such evil done to children. People often suggest pornography. That's a victimless expression of sex. That's not true either. Just read the stats on pornography. Uh, nearly everybody on the other end of the camera, if you like, doesn't want to be there. They're not there because they just love it. They're there because they have to, for one reason or another. These are all evils that result from the passions of sex. As saved sinners, we're to put off sexual sin and put on godliness in the realm of sexuality. Now, now what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean sex is evil. Never hear that. It means sex should be enjoyed in the context God gave it for. The right God-given context. So marriage between a man and a woman, as it was given from the very start. And so to the married people who are listening in, you should work on your sex life. You should work on your sex life because it's a bright and appropriate thing to do. It would be actually ungodly in a marriage to deny a sex life. It would be ungodly to not think about and see the good bonding part of sex in marriage. Uh, too often, unhappy Christian marriages come about through poor communication, particularly in the area of sex. Now, if that's your marriage, please don't let it slide year after year. I'll tell you, you're not the first. I've had many others who have those problems as well. And there is help. There's lots of good help out there, counselling in the area of communication and sex and all of these things. In the single life, which we should all remember, we all are single at various points in our life. It's just a timing thing. For some parts of some people's lives, you're not single. But most of us are single for chunks of life. In the single life, every person is called to sexual godliness and cleanness. If we had time, we could look at 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. It's very helpful. You can read that for yourself. But, but the guts of it is, flee from sexual immorality. But if your passions burn, and if you're able, seek the appropriate marriage relations. That's boiling down two chapters, 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. Now, the fleeing is really serious. Fleeing is really serious whether you're married or single. Remember Joseph in Potiphar's house. That is a great paradigm. He ran literally for his godliness. He ran for his life. He ran because he knew he was being trapped in an ungodly situation. Run. Today, running like Joseph, it looks different to that. It could mean smashing your computer. Take your cricket bat and smash your computer. If you are sinning because of the window the computer gives onto sex, get rid of the computer. That's running and fleeing. If you are sinning because of a smartphone, throw it on the ground, smash it up, get a dumb phone so you can't sin. That's what fleeing looks like. And it's not just that, it's, it's putting off, but it's putting on godly things. Now, I feel like I spoke about that two weeks ago. I wasn't thinking ahead to make sure I didn't cross over. But fill up your life with good things. And I encourage you to go back and think about some of those things that I mentioned last time. Verse 14 summarizes, put on love. Love binds all. In the new life, we put on love. And, and I think we can understand love in the context of sexuality well. Rightly orientated love means that we deal with our sexual passions. Because when it's wrongly oriented, the evil is massive. 
Now, once upon a time, I would have qualified all this application to young men. That is no longer true. Uh, the last 10 years have told me that loud and clearly. If for you what I'm saying is, is disgusting and awful and weird, praise God. Praise God if you've never had a problem with sexual immorality. That is a, a wonderful gift from God. But can I say it is not the normal pathway even for Christians anymore, which is sad. And so can you please pray for our churches where sexual immorality is getting a hold in the church? And for everyone else, you may well be thinking, well, yeah, I do have an area in my life I have to deal with. Remember, it says here that that was the nature of our former lives. It is the nature of the earthly life. You aren't weird to have issues around sex. It's not, not a weird thing. It's a part of the earthly life to put off and to put on the new and godly life. And so that means don't be embarrassed to talk about it. I'd love to think you would talk to another Christian and bring these things to light, to be prayed for, to start fleeing with exactly that, to put off sexual sin by bringing it to the light with a friend or more. It may be for you that you need more help, a counsellor. Maybe for you, you need to join Sexaholics Anonymous to deal with an addiction. It may be for you all sorts of things, but can I say, putting off and putting on means dealing with it. Sexual immorality is a part of the old life and not the new. So, we deal with sex. Now we're going to deal with money. I don't know which is more controversial in some ways to start speaking about. Uh, so I'm all in at this point. The second half of verse 5, at its core, is about money. So the evil desires word there is usually linked to covetousness. I want that person's stuff. I, I want what they've got. I, I wish I had it. The word there uh, about money is obviously greed as well, the next little word there. And then it goes on to say greed is idolatry. That's what Paul is saying is that greed is serving a false god. Problems around money is serving a false god. And as Jesus said, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve two gods. You can only have one. Money is such a demanding god. So often money doesn't lead to happiness. Have you noticed that? Money doesn't lead to happiness. In 2018, the Harvard Business School, they surveyed 2,000 millionaires in the U.S., there's 2,000 millionaires in the US. That's a lot of millionaires. Surveyed all these millionaires and they said, how much money would you need to be happy? And they all said, everyone said, somewhere between two and three times what I have now. 2,000 millionaires aren't happy. That's not enough money. They need twice or three times to be happy. Money is a demanding God. In church life, people are often embarrassed. Ministers are often embarrassed to talk about money. Maybe I should be, but I don't think I should. In Matthew 6, Jesus himself said, where our treasure is, there our heart is. See, this is actually a godliness issue that we all need to speak into and think about. And we need to because we live in one of the richest countries on the planet, in one of the richest times in all of history. You've probably heard people say, all church wants is your money. It's not true. Church wants way more than your money. Church wants your whole life because it's Jesus' church who wants, who wants everything from us. He wants us to put on the radical changed life. So if the pastor model we're seeing today is put off and put on, how do we put off greed? If a summary is verse 14, love, 
that binds all those characteristics together, love, other person-centered, binding, unified love, then I want to suggest that, that what helps us to put on the new life when it comes to money is contentment and generosity. So isn't it love for the Lord and love for his kingdom and, and love for his people serving his kingdom that leads us to generosity, to supporting mission in the world and supporting our church and all of these things? And isn't it love for the Lord and contentment in him that leads us to be satisfied with what he has given us, whatever that may be, our lot in this world? Contentment and generosity, these are, are fruits of putting on. Put on contentment and generosity in Christ. Uh, early in my Christian life, someone helped me to see the importance of generosity. I thought putting a dollar, a gold coin into the plate was generous because I'd never given. I'd never given anyone anything. My dad said, never share your tools, ever, to anyone, for any reason. It's my motto, motto, never share your tools. Hold your tools closely. Don't share your money. Why would you? Someone saw me putting in a gold coin and boldly, I must say, said to me, that's not really being generous. Have you ever thought about that? And I thought, you're right. <laughs> I'm earning a fortune in my job just out of university. I need to be giving more. In fact, he said, why don't you give until it hurts and then see where that lands? which was helpful advice. I didn't give till I hurt. I gave a little bit more than a few dollars to start with, but I learnt over time what it actually looked like. Greed, which is idolatry and a false god, that's the old life. Put it off. Don't live for your money. Live for generosity and contentment, characteristics to put on in the new life. Now, if we had time today, we could dig even further into all of these things. Sex and money is a pretty good start. We could go power. We don't have time for that. And many other things as well today. Uh, we had a halftime break just so that I could get you this far. So I hope that's been okay to go this far. But I do hope that in our growth groups, we talk about these things. Talk about sex and money. And are you being godly in these areas? Be the weird one in the group who raises it. Every group is blessed by a weird one who says, let's talk about sex because no one will. And then we've got this massive part of our life where we're not being godly. Obviously do it in the right context, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean. What is your plan to deal with the old life? And how are you putting on the new? Now, I want to say to you that it's actually, it sounds like it's all up to you. It sounds like work really hard, pull up your own socks, you do all the work. Actually, verse 10 is really important. We are being renewed. It's actually God's power that is actually opening our eyes to this. Yes, we work hard, but we work with the power of God in us, shaping us and changing us. And so we have this wonderful, practical pastoral model. Put off and put on. Don't put off and then not put on. That's really bad. I've seen that many times. Trying to put off something that you know is ungodly and doing nothing else creates a vacuum. It happens all the time with addictive uh, addicts let's say it happens all the time with addicts put off your addiction alcoholism how often do they put on a pornography addiction uh, put off narcotics addiction then they put on sadly the secondary addiction which is things like food addictions and other, these things happen don't put off without putting on even in the 12-step programs they want you to put on good things as defined by the 12-step programs as Christians, we have so much better than 12-step programs. We actually have a hope of change. Put off ungodliness and put on Christ. Put off ungodliness and put on all the renewal that he gives you through his word and the power of Christ and his spirit in you. 
We have a wonderful thing. So as we close today, I think Paul got to the end of this and realised, let's summarise this with a wonderful praise to God and a call for what we have. Not like the emperor with his pretend clothes, that's not us. We've got true clothes. We have true hope. So verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body you are called to peace. Whatever your sin, whatever your problems, whatever your troubles, the reality is in Christ, you are in Christ. Praise God for that. So be thankful. And we can finish with these encouraging words. Then let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another. In other words, keep changing. Even though you're in Christ, we keep changing with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Those are wonderful words. Praise God for the transformation he is bringing as we put off and put on. We're going to continue in prayer together. I'm not sure who's leading us, but thank you. In congregational prayer, uh, let's pray together.